Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney Magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, former Imagineer Rick Rothschild to the show. Welcome, Rick. Thank you very much, Sarah. I'm glad to be with you. It's great to have you on the show. I I was really excited because I didn't really know it at the time, but this year is the 35th anniversary of the American Adventure, which is my personal favorite Epcot attraction of all time. Lo and behold, there are some behind-the-scenes videos, which I will link in the show notes below for our listeners to find, but that's kind of how I kind of found you, Rick. (laughs) There's some great video footage of you talking about the show. Oh, yes. That was, was, uh, I don't know that they did more than one of those, but that was sort of a prototype show that they developed for um, the purpose of disseminating information about all the different attractions at Epcot. And as I say, I think it was the pilot one. And it did play publicly, but I don't know that they went on to do that many more about the rest of the pavilion. So I guess we're fortunate that they did the one about American Adventure. With this video footage, it was great to hear you and a lot of other Imagineers working on the project. So before we go into the American Adventure, what inspired you to to work in a theme park? I was born and raised in Southern California. I was born before Disneyland even opened. And uh, so as a, as a young boy, I went to Disneyland the first time in early 1956. Um, the, the thing, though, that really, I guess, was seminal for focusing me on my, my ultimate um, interest in pursuing uh, theme park work was the World's Fair in 64 uh, in New York. Um, I had the opportunity uh, to visit that with my family. I, my mother was uh, had relatives in New York, as did my dad, and so we spent a um, considerable amount of time when, that summer in, in uh, the New York, Long Island area, and a number of days went to the World's Fair. And it was really that and seeing particularly the Disney shows that were there at the time, plus just the whole uh, experience of the World's Fair in general that really got me excited Certainly the animated figures that were there that Disney first displayed with um, Carousel of Progress and with Meet Mr. Lincoln really were quite extraordinary uh, and piqued my uh, interest in terms of just how they did that. Um, And so subsequently, many years later, um, I ended up having the fortunate opportunity to be hired and go to work in Imagineering. Chief in that was was my chief mentor through the many years of being in Imagineering, which was Marty Scalar. But besides Marty, um, there were a number of of the uh, fellows, uh, particularly a few ladies too, um, who had been around um, working with Walt back on the World's Fair. Roly Crump, Ward Kimball, 
uh, Sam McKim, uh, to mention a few, uh, Harriet Burns uh, as another. Um, and there were quite a few other uh, folks around still um, when I started working in Imagineering and through the time that we were doing Epcot. So that was for me and for everyone else that had the opportunity to go to work in Imagineering and work on both the Epcot project and the Tokyo um, Disneyland project that was ongoing through much of the same period of time, being able to work with all of these individuals who really were the, uh, in most cases, um, you know, predated Disneyland, had had active hands in some part of Disneyland as well as active hands in the classic Disney animated films that we all grew up with. That was quite an extraordinary opportunity. And as a creative director, you're probably having several, several, several meetings just to get this attraction just right. So what was one of the first things you you, you all decided and agreed on for this project? Well, giving credit where credit is due, there is a gentleman who's no longer with us, Randy Bright, who um, was um, really responsible for my having the opportunity to work on American Adventure uh, directly. He was at Imagineering when I got there. He started his career, I think, uh, while he was in college working at Disneyland, went on to work at, at uh, Walt Disney World when they were opening Walt Disney World and continue with Imagineering. And at the time that I came into Imagineering in 78, Randy had been there for a number of years already um, and had been uh, as a, a writer and ultimately became the the head writer responsible for all of the script content, story content for all of Epcot, that transition from into that into that managerial and sort of chief writer position uh, happened while I was there in the first year that I was there in '79. So I'd gotten to know Randy. Randy actually, as I got to know him, um, one of the things I learned about him was that he had written the first treatment for the American Adventure that became subsequently five treatments, um, four that followed his first, um, to coming back then again when a number of others, I think Ray Bradbury had, had worked on one and there were several other, John DeCure Sr. had worked on one, uh, along with the first one that Randy done, and none of them had quite clicked and quite hit it. and. Um, as the story goes, because this happened before I came to Imagineering, Randy went back and uh, analyzed the, the the scripts, including his own and the story ideas for this attraction, and really sort of picked it apart and put it back together again, and came up with the idea that was the core idea um, that is the American Adventure today. So, as I said, credit for credit due here. Randy really conceived of the idea for the American Adventure, this idea of doing some kind of a stage presentation of, of historical moments, really highlighting the spirit of, of what makes America, America, and more importantly, really to be America, it's really the spirit of, of what makes us as Americans um, tick. And so that, that concept, the basic high concept for the attraction, had been <clears throat> completed as I was coming into Imagineering. In fact, there was, I remember the first week I arrived, or actually it was before I even started there, but I, I was asked because I was, I was um, interviewed there and then came in, they had an open house that I was fortunate to be asked to come to that was principally for employees and uh, of Imagineering at the time, which back in those days was called WED, um, WED Enterprises. And, um, 
So there was a, a show there that was presenting the idea of the American adventure that was the talking head show, as it was referred to. And the three talking heads, because there literally was nothing more than three AA uh, heads on a, on a, on a dais. <laughs> um, they, they were the heads of Mark Twain, uh, Ben Franklin, and Will Rogers. And at the time, they pitched the idea of this story and that Disney was going to tell this story in an American adventure pavilion at Epcot. And they developed this as a way to um, entice sponsorship. They, they, they were doing this with a number of the pavilions. Um, and American Adventure was one of the first actually to get sponsorship with Coca-Cola and American Express um, to be a part of, of the original Epcot sponsors and participants. So Randy, as I say, then developed this basic idea with th this notion that there were going to be, at the time, um, these three voices, these three personalities that would be the three storytellers, one from the, from the uh, 18th century, one from the 19th century, and one from the 20th century. Um, so when I arrived in 78, um, I was actually not working in the creative area, but within a year, um, I had the opportunity to um, uh, interview with Randy and went to work for Randy. Um, and I started with him in December 79. And part of the reason that I, I was involved with that opportunity was that, as I mentioned, Randy had taken on this role beyond writing American Adventure, uh, but supervising all of the script development and all the story development for all of the Epcot pavilions and therefore was a very busy man. And my opportunity came to work with him with no real job description, but just being there to sort of help out wherever uh, an assistant could help out. And it became very clear as time went on that the American Adventure, which was, was something he was still very keen on and, and continuing to write and develop the, the scripting on as it was moving into design, it really needed a more day-to-day -day, um, director, and it didn't need an art director, and it, and it had a writer with Randy, but it needed somebody that could give more time, and people were constantly needing to come to Randy to get decisions on different things, and he was so busy that it was becoming difficult to get the time with him. So by um, 79, as I say, in December of 79, I, I went to work with Randy, and by spring of 1980, um, the, the this opportunity to really move into a position where I was on a day-to-day -day basis working as what became the show director, show producer um, role, which was unique and new for Disney because up to that point, uh, most all of the attractions really were head, headed creatively by an art director. Um, out of the tradition that grew from when the when the attractions were being developed originally with a lot of of animation talent and and background talent from the studio it was principally artist hands and artists um, involved in the creation of these attractions this particular attraction because it was so filled with so many different pieces of the technology and was was far beyond um, retelling just a a animated movie that already had a story and had a certain clarity and design and was more of a of a traditional dark ride and the kinds of rides that were at that point themed at at the Disneyland park. Um, so there the the role that I filled there was was unique and new, actually, 
And in taking on the role, Marty and Randy, uh, Marty being the classic wordsmith and master wordsmith that he was, um, wanted to try and figure out what to what to call the role. And I said, from my background, which had been in in theater and television and film, I, I said the the principally I'm functioning as a show director for this attraction. Randy's obviously the writer and 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 chief producer or lead producer, but both as a producer and principally as a as a show director. Ultimately, Marty at the time felt that calling someone a director in context with so many art directors, which within the Imagineering um, uh, years um, meant uh, the general person that was leading the creative. He said it will confuse people because you're not really an art director. And um, so he said, we'll call you a show producer. So I became the first show producer at Disney. And um, in my mind, continued to do what I felt I needed to do to help show direct more than produce. And ultimately, over the years, long after American Adventure was finished, my title with Disney did change, and I became a show director there, um, doing similar kinds of work on other shows through the years. But relevant back to your question, now that you've had sort of the the backstory and the history um, of you know the decisions, I think the interesting decision that I was quite aware of was this number one? This this notion that there had been these four failures, if you will, or four um, not quite right story ideas uh, that Randy sort of came back around and had this idea and started to work with an outside historical consultant uh, that was uh, Dr. Alan Yarnell at UCLA, was the the head of the American History Department at UCLA, and so. The two of them began to work together with Alan being the the resource for the history, because obviously Randy was no historian. Um, And between the two of them and lots of dialogue, began to search for this this core of this idea that Randy wanted to focus on, which was what was the dreamers and doers of America. And this combination of those that dream and those that do define the spirit of Americans and define the spirit of America. And... um, so through that, this idea of, of narrative force being uh, individuals from our history rather than having some omnipresent voice that was just the narrator voice. And so that birthed this idea of Ben Franklin and, and um, Mark Twain and um, uh, Will Rogers that I mentioned. Um, and the, the, as one of the, the early decisions actually as it went into the next level of development, which was as I was working with Randy, was this notion that Mark Twain and, and Ben Franklin worked really well with each other. They're, they're sort of natural foils, as you can see in the show. They were, by nature, their personalities, one being this rather skeptical um, uh, cynic and and uh, in Twain, and the bubbling, all, generally always optimistic Franklin. Um, they, they worked well together, and this notion that as we got into the 20th, 20th century, having one voice speak for all the 20th century, which at the time in 1980 um, was really, you know, looking back through 65, 70 years worth of history, um, that a lot of people were, in one form or another, um, had been alive and part of. It was hard to pick really one person to act as the sole spokesperson for the 20th century. And so the idea that voices that were real voices in the case of Twain and Franklin and other voices that speak as characters on stage, the idea of letting the narrative 
um, continue and be told through these different voices and allow the progression of the narrative to, to um, really sort of not need one 20th century voice and then wrap it up at the end with these two historical figures looking at at where the the United States was at the at the time of, of uh, 1982, that was probably in terms of early decisions and 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 choices around um, creative path that led to the core of American adventure. I'd say those are chief in that. So today, as we are in the 21st century now, do you think Will Rogers would have still been the perfect choice for that? Or would you have chosen somebody different? That's, that's interesting. I'm not certain that he would have been. I think in some ways, and there was a lot of discussion about this even at the time, somebody like a Walter Cronkite, who was seminal in, um, in delivering um, the news to America as he did, Someone like that would would be equally considered perhaps a voice. And, and at the same time, there are others from both literary history, uh, our literary history and others. So um, not so clear cut, even looking now back with the perspective of being in the 21st century, that you could pick just one. I mean, number one, the the 19th century or the 18th century really from a standpoint of speaking about America's history, you're only dealing with, you know, 30, 35 years of, of individuals and of history, um, of core American history, um, not obviously the history that goes back with the original um, uh, indigenous people that lived here and others who came here. But really, in terms of looking at the narrow choices of the, col- the colonies and the colonists and the leadership in, in the sort of birth of the nation as one group that you naturally would be looking for. And so hence you get somebody like Fra- uh, Franklin. And then Twain really, um, although survived, I think, into the 20th century, but principally, you know, w- was writing um, uh, about the 19th century and really was at the at the center as a writer about the American experience. Um, that was a relatively, again, not without some debate, perhaps, but relatively easy. You get into the 20th century, and so many more um, elements uh, of America's diversity start to show. Um, the, the just the, the the breadth of individual contribution in all aspects of America, the growth of America as it exploded onto the world stage coming out of the 19th century into the 20th century, I think it becomes much more difficult to find one person potentially. Instead of shying away from the very sensitive subjects, uh, including slavery, I loved how this attraction really not exactly embraced those moments, but said they are a part of our history and we are going to address them and they are a part of why we are where we are today. So when, you, when you're when you coming to a sensitive subject like that, how, how do you kind of work around that? How do you, how do you make sure that there is an emphasis that this was a really awful, terrible time for so many people and there was a huge loss, but then also make sure that it still coincides with this story of heroes? Well, uh, fair question. Um, I think, again, you, you let history speak for itself and you let those that were part of that history speak for that history. I think that was the brilliance, really, in Randy's concept was rather than speaking about Americans, let Americans themselves, that are historical figures, not simply 
um, all major figures, but in the case of something like the Revolutionary War, you have you have two soldiers who are speaking in a sense about their perspective of what it was like um, to be involved in 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 the um, the you know fight for independence. Um, you have something like uh, uh, the photos that we used for. Uh, telling the story of the Civil War and two brothers um, are all, I remember spending hours and hours and hours um, starting at UCLA, going through all of Anthony, uh, of, of uh, Brady's uh, photographs and other Civil War pho photographers' work, finding photographs that in a way um, were the appropriate photographs of, of the reality of that time to help tell the story against the song that uh, and, the, and the verses of the song that we chose to help tell that story. Um, the characters, um, you know, we went to great pains actually in incorporating our f Missouri farm family and the two brothers that um, went off to opposite sides of the conflict um, in casting all of those because they were they were human beings that were alive in, in the 20th century who we, we cast, photographed, and used to, to create the characters and also to do the photography that we did of them. And in the case of, of the specific photographs of the two brothers in, uh, as they per, per, partook uh, in and participated, I should say, in, this, in the Civil War, we used, I found specific photographs from uh, Brady that we then reposed using our actors to, but basically as best we could, being as exacting as we could to the photograph that Brady had taken with the only real sort of um, obvious um, change being that we had our characters, so they were recognizably the two brothers. But they were. it wasn't like we just said, oh, well, let's make this, this moment up and, and have them pose this way or when the one brother's you know, has been has been killed and his body is there. Let's just lay him out on the ground and shoot him. We actually went to great pains to to absolutely create based on existing photographs of that time. So, I mean, even even uh, I remember um, we went through a, a long exercise on what was the the train station that's used um, for when the Missouri farm family is accepting the coffin of the one son who's been killed coming home. And the, the key thing in that, w which was interesting, was we wanted to make sure that the name on the train station was a real potential um, uh, city at the time or town that could have been somewhere in, would have been in Missouri and conceivably located within Missouri in an area where it was quite plausible that there could have been a family like this family who had two sons, one who went north and one who went south. And so we did a lot of research on, you know, where what, what those towns were. And then we also said, <laughs> this is sort of the conceit here, but we said we're, we're, um, we have no photographs of any of these places that we can use. So we're going to use the train station at Disneyland um, to, to do the actual photograph, but we're going to put the name of this particular town onto the train station and then, you know, make it look a little older and so forth. Um, so we can take the photograph. And so we also then, um, looked for a town that no longer existed. 
<laughs> that had existed during that time that could plausibly have been where this fictitious family came from that would have plausibly had two brothers that would have fought on either side of the war and at the same time to do avoid the debate of anybody saying but that doesn't look like our train station in our town we purposely once we identified the the region we wanted to work and then we when we started looking for towns that no longer literally no longer existed so that we could in a sense avoid um we were we were creating a bit of fiction to help tell the story, but we didn't want to go against the reality of something that still existed and people saying, wait a minute. Um, so that's sort of an example, I guess, of the of the obsessive detail uh, and thought process that we went through on everything in that show. You really crossed your T's and dotted your I's. And up until maybe like two weeks ago, I found out that there were two Imagineers uh, that the brothers were based off of Jeff Burke and John Olson, and I thought that that they were real images. <laughs> they look very old and and realistic. So so that the whole family was was a group of actors, including the two Imagineers. Correct. Uh, actually, the the mother and the father also um, were Imagineers. Um, I can't remember the gentleman's name who was the father, but he was in the special effects department and. Um, the mother, uh, her first name was Louise. I can't remember her last name. She was in the interiors department. Um, the two girls, the little, the little baby daughter and the young daughter are the only two that we cast as actually sort of outside of Imagineering. Um, so yeah, a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of Imagineers that are scattered throughout the American adventure. Um, uh, if you will, their, their, uh, likeness. Um, virtually, I think all of the spirits on the side walls, the 12 spirits that are there, are all, were all sculpted and modeled after specific individual uh, Imagineers that were chosen for each of those. Um, one of whom is a very famous, uh, now passed away, um, artist for Disney, uh, Frank Armitage. He's the mountain man. Um, and there were a number of other, like I say, rich, I think every one of those was an Imagineer um, that we picked. We, you know, we went through and found individuals that we thought were interesting, both um, by ethnicity and by, by male or female and by face type and so forth. So maybe we cast people. We didn't just randomly pick people, but we purposely, again, used um, people within Disney, um, which was, I think, um, for many years and continues to be to a degree a, a tradition within Imagineering to, to do that kind of thing. And were you involved with the, the recording aspect of just the vocals, uh, whether it be, you know, the orchestrations yeah. or also the characters themselves? Yeah, I directed all of the voice talent recording and I did all of the voice editing um, for the American Adventure. In fact, Trish, you were talking about, I cast her. She was from UCLA, if I recall, which was my, I'd been in graduate school a few years preceding starting at Disney and um, I cast um, Ralph Meyering um, who was another uh, actor uh, in the graduate program that I knew um, he did Thomas Jefferson and um, uh, he I knew very well from from being in grad school with him and when I was casting I called him and said hey would you come audition for this because he he had actually done um, uh, some work at uh, 
when I was at UCLA and I was both impressed by his acting performances and also he'd done some historical figure work there as, as an actor. So he ended up being the voice of Thomas Jefferson. And then as we were looking, I, I did a bunch of different voice casting and, and threw it out again. And I think Ralph may have actually turned me on to Trish again, um, not always, always reaching out to recognized Hollywood talent when there's great talent out there that can give you the right voice. And Trish was wonderful in her performance, um, uh, as were the variety of different actors. I mean, um, Dal McKinnon did uh, um, Ben Franklin, and he'd been doing Ben Franklin for a really long time for Imagineering um, and had done the original voice that, that was part of the three head voice that I mentioned um, so he was, you know, we brought him back in and he was rather an elderly gentleman, but boy, he perked up, um, as soon as the, <laughs> as we said, okay, take one. And he was suddenly like from this quiet, almost, um, I was, I was questioning whether there was any performance left in him. He suddenly came alive and, and gave us the performances that you hear today. So it was a lot of fun doing all of that. I love his Benjamin Franklin. I love it so much. And and then I found that I think it was Will Rogers Jr. His son voiced Will Rogers, correct? Yeah, that was an interesting one, too, because um, we became aware as I was looking around, I became aware that his son was alive. And so it was like, well, well, why not, you know, consider someone who probably has a voice close to his dad's uh, and more so he had taken on as a performer and was doing his father um, uh, in, in different kinds of theatrical presentations and so forth. So it was a natural to reach out to him and he graciously accepted our, our offer to participate. It's interesting to um, you know, think about messing with something that everybody enjoys and, and, the, and not, not screwing it up. Um, but, um, I think, you know, the challenge, at least with the golden dream, even both times we reworked it was as much, um, an opportunity to take the, the clarity of what the, the overall show's, um, perspective is, um, allows one to, um, I think be guided in, in such a, such a proper way that, it's not that you can't fail or that you couldn't fail, but I think if you pay strong attention to the foundation of what Randy um, had behind the idea for American Adventure and how and what we delivered, um, it, it's it's a it's a narrow um, path um, that you have to travel down in terms of criteria for for looking at how you reformulate something like the Golden Dream to make it more contemporary. Um, and, uh, so I, I also think though, that there's a challenge considering that now, like you say, you know, it's 35 years, it will be more than quickly 40 and then 50 years. Um, the whole sense of, you know, the fact that the last physical scene that we have there, other than the, the finale, the last physical scene is the second world war, which is becoming, um, less and less um, connected to a generation as that generation slowly passes. And um, a huge amount of our history that, that a huge proportion of our audience connect with has no physical manifestation in that show. And I think that's really the long-term challenge 
Um, you know, when we opened in 82, there were people that were coming to that show who could relate to the Depression, could relate to the Second World War, could relate to FDR, could relate to Will Rogers, um, even though there were younger generations who barely knew them, now look at it from that same perspective and say, you know, if you go back 35 years from 1982, you'd be hard pressed to say, well, shouldn't we, I mean, we went, we, we reached to the forties with, with a, a dimensional, um, uh, presentation. So shouldn't we be reaching back similarly at least, and therefore, you know, what else do you put on that stage? And it opens up a whole can of worms, of course, of if you do put something on that stage, probably you're going to have to take something away. So what do you do? So there's a whole series of questions that, that are have been discussed off and on through the years, m more as a philosophical discussion, but with an awareness that someday that that philosophical discussion is going to have to take on more real world relevance and and look for you know w what can you do to make it still connect so it doesn't simply become um, sort of an archival piece uh, at at uh, Epcot because I don't think you want to do that either. That was certainly not its intent to begin with. And and from American Adventure, I really want to make sure we touch bases on on your current projects because you are still working, and I think that's amazing. I love all of the attractions. There's so many Disney attractions to our listeners. There are so many Disney attractions that Rick has worked on. You have to look up all of them because they're amazing. You know, it's a tough to be a bug. Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, Captain EO, Mickey's Philhar Magic. There's just so many, but uh, you know, we can't cover them all today. But I'd love to talk about some of the the latest projects that you been working on so uh, well I just I just came back from Tokyo uh, where we just completed it will opens on the 12th of May but we we've basically completed a show for the Tokyo Disney Seas Resort uh, in Port Discovery um, we replaced uh, Storm Rider which was a show I also did uh, back in in 2000 2001 um, with a, a whole new basically a whole new attraction except that we're using the simulator base that we had there but the show is now um uh, all built around the nemo franchise in a show called that that is nemo and friends sea rider adventure and um it as i say opens may 12th of this year and i think um it's really safe to say that this in some ways this attraction that we built 16 17 years ago was built um and what we opened there was somewhat of a rehearsal for what we're opening now <laughs> um i think the the attraction that that will open on the 12th of may is an exciting new addition to the park it's also uh, a wonderfully immersive probably the most immersive um ride experience that we've done it from a simulator's perspective um and taking people into the world of nemo shrinking into the size of, a, of, of you know, uh, a, a medium-sized fish, a little bit larger than Dory, and having uh, an experience that you, like Star Tour, is even more complex in the sense that there are um, multiple scenes that we, we choreographed and that Pixar created uh, visually, and um, the, the number of paths that you and characters that you will encounter 
um, far exceed the number of opportunities to see multiple performances of Star Tours. So, and it's uh, visually uh, much more immersive. There's there's a series of of sides uh, portholes, a very large windows basically all along the sides of the vehicle as well as out in the front in a vehicle that's you know 140 passengers so it's or 120 i'm sorry so it's about three times virtually three times the size of a star tours vehicle um is a very very unique experience and uh and quite quite a lot of fun we had actually a visit from john lassiter only a few weeks ago to who he's been well aware of of the of the development of it and had seen pieces of it up at Pixar and at Imagineering, but was finally able to come and ride the final results with us a couple of weeks ago. And and he was he rode it numerous times, <laughs> and uh, and and quite enjoyed it. So I I I hope um, that people will um, appreciate it uh, when it opens on the 12th of May. I suspect that they it will be very popular in Tokyo. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on the show, but before we end, I have three Disney-themed questions I ask each guest, and I call them the Fab Three. So we'll start with the Donald one, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Peter Pan uh, was my all-time favorite. Um, Peter Pan still influences me. Peter Pan was, in part, uh, probably my, my reason before... The World's Fair came along for loving the Disney theme parks and the whole idea of being able to fly once 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 I'd seen the movie to then go to the theme parks and fly in the movie with Peter Pan and quite honestly was in part the inspiration uh, behind um, uh, Soren and my love of flying. So um, Peter Pan. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Timon. <laughs> um, I, I've always had a great affinity for Timon. Um, and uh, I, I wouldn't mind spending uh, time on the savannah with him. And finally, our Mickey question. If I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Wow. Um... It's interesting because uh, I bounced rather quickly from the, the contemporary ones that are stuck in all of our minds back to probably uh, another one of those that was life, life I won't say life-changing, but it was definitely uh, a strong um, influence, and that's Yo-Ho-Ho, A Pirate's Life for me. Um, that attraction is, is another one that really indelibly uh, struck me from the time I first saw it left a mark and was in part, I think my love of animated figures came from that show. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Rick. Uh, you know, again, I'm so glad that the American Adventure is still at Epcot. You know, 35th anniversary is just wonderful. So here's to another 35 years of, of American history and, and we'll see where it takes us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. Well, thank you for having me uh, be a part of your of your ongoing, very successful podcast. So, thank you. Flying high, flying high. Flying high, flying high. 
The golden age never was the present age. But with human liberty, we can fulfill the promise and meaning of America.